So 2012, you all know we've taken a few trips to Israel over the years, and um, 2012 we went. We went to Jordan, was where our first stop was, to see Petra and some other places, which is amazing. Um, and then crossed the border into the land of the Bible, into Israel. And um, one, of the, one of the things that we've done every time that I've went is that we have a, a vendor come in who sells uh, uh, silver things like rings and bracelets and necklaces uh, with Hebrew inscriptions on them. It's kind of a, you know, so you can buy a, like a silver ring and take it home as a memento. I bought a big fat uh, silver ring that had the name Yeshua on it, um, the Hebrew name of Jesus, which I have since lost, so I don't wear it. My wife is not too happy about that, but uh, we took our oldest on that trip, Daniel, and, um, and he wanted a ring too. And, uh, but he wanted the sacred name of Yahweh on the ring. Now, the name Yahweh in Hebrew is actually just four letters because they have no vowels in the Hebrew alphabet. It's just yud Hey vav Hey or Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H, pronounced W, which is where we get Yahweh. And I was, you know, in America, we're used to getting our way. It's like, hey, if I want to pay for it, put whatever you, I want on the ring. Well, this lady looked at my son and said, no. And, and we're also like, what? I mean, we're going to pay you some money to get a ring. Can't you put Yahweh on the ring? And she said, no. And when, I, when questioned why, she said something along the lines of this. She said, you do a lot of things with your hands that are unclean. You wash dishes, you go to the bathroom, and the sacred name of Yahweh should not be connected to those things. She was willing to forsake a sale for the sanctity of the name. And I have never forgotten that. And a big piece of that is because God has commanded his name to be sanctified. He has commanded us to treat his name as holy. He has commanded us to revere it. Of the Ten Commandments, which is at the heart of God's people's covenantal responsibility, a response to his grace, the second, if the first is worship, you should worship me and me only, the second is you are not to take the Lord's name in vain. Now, up to this point, we have looked at the fact that, well, last week was on worshiping God alone, but before that, again, put this on proper footing, is the realization that God saves people the same way in the Old Testament as he did in the New Testament. That is, he saves by grace alone. He brought them out of Israel as an act of grace, and now these commands are basically the fruits of their faith. As Martin Luther once taught, you know, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. It produces fruits. And some of those fruits are worship God alone and to revere his name. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is the, the second of these Ten Commandments. So here it is. Again, I'm connecting verse 6 because I want to remind you that before there was ever a command or an imperative or a directive, he reminds them of everything he's done. Kind of like God reminds us of everything he's done for us at the cross in Ephesians 1 through 3, and then in the beginning in chapter 4, he tells us how we're to respond. He says, I am the Lord, that is Yahweh, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's grace. Verse 11, this begins the second of the ten. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord, that is Yahweh, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And that is the response to grace. So I'm going to break this down like I did last week and deal with what does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? There's a lot of confusion over that. Um, and then why? Why is it so important? Like revering the name of the Lord. So there's two parts. 
But before we get to those two parts, I just want to, you to feel the weight of what the whole of the Bible says about the name of the Lord. Like, I just want you to feel like, wow. So the Bible actually elevates the name to the highest place, and not just in a couple of places. I could spend probably 40 minutes reading just texts that talk about the importance, the grandeur, the supremacy of God's name. But I'll give you just a sample. <clears throat> Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That is this of unparalleled majesty. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh, our, our God. So his name is the object of unparalleled trust. Unite my heart, David says in Psalm 86, verse 11. Unite my heart to fear or tremble or feel awe at your name. Nations will fear the name of the Lord. This is a prophetic. At some point, all the nations, all the people will tremble before the name of the Lord. And this is one of my favorites. Psalm 138, David is speaking to, to Yahweh, to God. He says, you have exalted above all things, not just some things or a few things, but all things. That is the, the highest place. You have exalted to the highest place above all things, your name and your word. That's pretty, pretty impressive that God values his word and his name as the highest things. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. And here's an association of power with his name. This is taken out of Ezekiel. This is a rather negative verse, but it makes a really important point. Because of all of the idolatry and the wickedness of his people, God basically says, listen, I'm not going to save you for your sake. I'm going to save you for my name's sake. Like when, when I'm, I've had it, I'll save you, but I'm saving you for me. My name, right? Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, that is act and save, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Now that's just a sample from the Old Testament about the supremacy, the unparalleled majesty, the object of trust, of fear, individually and as nations, and that God's highest allegiance, even above humans, is to his name. Does that continue on in the New Testament? Absolutely. The very first thing that our Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, what's the very first thing he prays for? Hallowed be your name. Let it be revered above all else. Let it be glorified. Let it be sacred. This most sacred of the sacred things. Revelation, this is a, happens in a number of places in there, but who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? So just want you to feel the weight. When the Bible talks about the name of the Lord, it elevates it to the highest position. The object of fear, unparalleled majesty, worship, power, all these things are associated with the name of the Lord. Okay? Yahweh. With that said... Again, what does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? If you grew up in the church, your parents probably 
told you, don't ever say, oh my God, say, oh my gosh, instead. Or don't even say, oh my gosh, because it's kind of a replacement word for God, right? Drilled into all of us. Um, and I appreciate that, as a, you know, to this day, I, I don't say the names of God lightly or in those ways because I was trained that way. But it begs the question, what does it actually mean to take the Lord's name in vain? Now, before I get to some interpretations and applications of that, let me just point out two words, the word take and the word vain. The word take in Hebrew can mean like take, like carry, and bear, that is, it, it's like, like a, a person who graduates from Marine boot camp bears the name of a Marine if he graduates, like carry, bear, take, that's what that word means, it's just, it's, and that's going to be important in a couple of minutes. The second word, vain, most of us know what that means. It means empty, hollow, without substance, meaningless. So you could translate this prohibition, you shall not bear, carry, take the name of Yahweh in a way that's empty, useless, meaningless, or um, without substance. Okay? Just kind of a bare translation. There have been three major interpretations to what this means. The reason there's three major interpretations, not just one, is because it's somewhat general. Now, in my belief about this verse, you know, the Holy Spirit, when he wants to be specific, he can be specific when he moves a man to write scripture. In this case, this is the hand of God wrote these, remember? God wrote these on the tablet, so this is his words, exact words. And when he tends to be precise, he will be precise. When he tends to be general, I think it's intentional. So that it actually can be applied and interpreted, interpreted in a broad way to encompass a lot of different things. So these three major lines of interpretation, I think, are all within the scope of this general prohibition. So three major uh, interpretations slash applications of this. What does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? The first one, by Jewish tradition, is to understand that the taking of the Lord's name in vain is in the context of vows and oaths. Like we used to put our hand on a Bible and swear. We don't do that anymore, but people would swear by the name of Yahweh to assert or strengthen the truthfulness of what they're saying. It's like, I swear by the name of Yahweh that I did not steal your donkey, right? And the Jewish tradition would say, if you're going to swear by Yahweh's name, you better mean it and you better follow through on it. If you do it as a kind of a, an empty, hollow assertion of truthfulness, but you don't really mean it and you're not going to follow through, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. And I think that's a valid interpretation slash application, is not to take the Lord's name in vain when it comes to making an oath or a promise. But we don't really do that in our culture, we, do we? We just don't, we really don't swear other than if you're called to testify in court. And even then you're not called to swear by anything holy. You're just at risk of committing perjury, right? That's the first line. In Jewish tradition, it means it's in the context of oaths and, and vows. The main Christian tradition of understanding this verse has to do with using God's name, like God or Yahweh or Lord um, or Jesus Christ, as profanity or as profane or as an expletive or just a meaningless use of it. Like so, like I said, as a kid saying, oh my God was ruled out because you're using the word God or name God in a very useless manner. It shows no respect at all. 
Now, I, I believe that is a valid interpretation slash application of this. Again, it's, he gives it, I think, as a general principle that can apply in a multitude of ways. Anything that would, that would use God's name in an irreverent way, either in an oath or just as an expletive, is, is valid, right? I mean, even on a human level. Can you imagine smashing your finger with a thumb and Deanna Tickard saying my wife's name? Like, I never do that because I love her, right? It just doesn't make any sense to do that anyway. So that's the second main, is just expletives, use it in a profound or useless way. The third major interpretation of this has more to do with life itself. That is, in ancient times, owners would often write their names on their possessions. And it's found in the Bible, too, like God writes his name on his people. As a sign of ownership, but also as an advertisement of one's character. Like, oh, this, this belongs to so-and-so. Like, it is a representation of the person. Or as Old Testament scholar Daniel Block writes, he says, Accordingly, noble persons of means would take care that any vessel that bore their name would reflect the character and status as owners. That means, if you profess that Jesus is your Lord, but you live however you wish in denial of his commands, then, in effect, you're carrying his name in vain. As you're living a life how you want to live, but you're still claiming the name. That, and that would apply to all of life. And I think that is a valid interpretation based, based upon historical context. Is to say, I'm a Christian, but then live like a pagan. You are bearing the name of Christ without substance. That's pretty good. That means... Like when it comes to applying and understanding this, that we are to revere God's name with our lips and our living, with how we speak his name. We're not to speak it vainly and we're not to live it out as if his name doesn't matter in regular life. I think that's what it means. All three of those things are valid applications of this principle. Does this truth about taking the Lord's name in vain, um, is it reinforced in the New Testament? I believe it is. Uh, certainly it's reflected in the prayer of Jesus by implication when he says, hallowed be your name. If that's how he's telling his church to pray, then we ought to hallow his name. We ought to revere his name and we ought to speak of it with reverence. So I certainly implied there. At a number of points, people blaspheme the name of, of the Lord in the, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament, in James chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 13, like the beast that comes out of the ocean, this, this antagonistic figure, blasphemes the name of God for which he will be judged. So yes, it does apply. And at the same time, I believe the New Testament expands upon it. In the sense that the same kind of reverence that is afforded the name of Yahweh in the New Testament is directed to Jesus in the New Testament. The same kinds of reverence, the same words that are used of Old Testament with reference to Yahweh are now used and pointed in the direction of Jesus. And his name, of course, means Yahweh, the sacred name, saves. Again, a couple of samples. This is Philippians chapter 10. After he's been exalted to the highest place, it says, So that at the name 
of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, this, this every knee shall bow is a direct quotation of, of Isaiah 45, 23, where Yahweh himself says, every knee shall bow. And now we see it the name of Jesus, again, same person. Slightly different name, but Yahweh's in the name. Every knee bows, in every heaven, both in heaven, the angelic realm, and on earth. Everything bows to the name of Jesus. So the same kind of superior, supreme place his name uh, holds in the Old Testament, Jesus' name holds in the New. A couple of more. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So now everything's to be done to his name's sake and for his glory, so that in the name of our Lord Jesus might be glorified in you. These are things that typically would be spoken of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Now it's directed to Jesus. So, yes, we ought to treat the name of the Lord reverently, including and specifically the name of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've thought about that before or if you've even reflected on your own use of, of, the, of his name. But do we have, in our entertainment-oriented, where you laugh at everything sacred, do we have a healthy reverence with how we say and live the name of Jesus? As we say and live the name of God revealed in Jesus. Do you? Or is it easy just to say it? Good question. I think this is a this is a huge reminder for all of us, and and uh, is, is, is it, it speaks volumes not only to other Christians how you say the name, but also to the world, whether you really treasure the Lord, how you speak His name, how you live His name. I think that's what it means. Okay, it's not just a it's oaths, vows. Uh, don't use His name flippantly as a swear word, and. Don't live your life as a pagan if you claim to be a Christian follower of the name of Jesus. Why is it so important? Second part. Why is this so important? And I want to answer that along two lines. Objectively and subjectively. That is, why is it important outside of us? And why should it be important inside of us? When we talk about something that's objective, we talk about something um, that's intrinsically worthy of being revered. Like all that God is. Uh, his name like sums up his character and his actions. That's what a name does. Even, even, even in our, our regular human world, that's, that's what a name does. So if I say a name like C.S. Lewis, instantly those who are no C.S. Lewis are going to think brilliant um, profoundly simple, creative, Christian thinker. Like those, those things are embodied in the name C.S. Lewis. If I say the name Winston Churchill, then those who are like even have a sliver of historical understanding will go bold, courageous, victorious leader who defied tyranny when others were silent and timid. That's all connected to the name. Or if I say John Hansen, founder of our church, those of you who know him, Loving, caring, pastor, interesting sense of humor, um, and, and a, a fisherman. Like, it's all just connected to the name, right? That is, the name of Yahweh represents, communicates, sums up 
his character, and his work. So when we say the name Yahweh or Jesus or God defined through Christ, we are speaking of someone who is infinitely powerful. We are speaking of someone who is so holy that when someone went to touch the ark, they were struck dead. We're talking about someone who is so sovereign that he organizes and knows and governs every sparrow, every hair follicle, and every molecule of the universe. We're talking about someone so immensely loving and gracious that he gave his life for us. God himself bled and died for the sake of sinners like you and me. We're talking about somebody who is infinitely worthy of that kind of reverence. And there's no way to paint a big enough picture. Words can't grasp or or communicate the massiveness of who God is. And yet this name, Jesus, God, Yahweh, sums up who he is. That's objectively speaking, that's why we should, because of who he is. What about subjectively? See, I think if the Spirit of God is in your heart and you've come to a knowledge of who God really is, not just mentally, but with your soul, then we should want, desire, crave to revere his name. It should be an instinct, an inner instinct to, to revere it ourselves and then almost to be offended when we hear it misused outside because we care so much about it. We do have an innate sense of what's sacred in our culture. It's usually not over-religious things. If you've had the privilege of going to Hawaii, Pearl Harbor, you probably stopped at the, the uh, USS Arizona Memorial, you know, suspended over the sunken ship. And it is a solemn experience. Like, is it a moving experience? You don't hear people laughing or joking. No one's doing jump rope or cheering with palm palms. It is a reverent moment because beneath your feet are over a thousand dead bodies of soldiers, or excuse me, sailors and marines. There is just a sense of, you know, you don't joke about this. And I've never heard a spoof on Saturday Night Live, not that I watch it all the time, about the USS Arizona. Why? Because it's sacred. We talk about 9-11. People don't joke about that. When you visit there, I have not visited, but I heard it is a solemn place, a reminder of sacrifices that were made. We don't joke about stuff like that because it's sacred. Our flag, it's sacred for most, I hope most, Americans. Not because it's particular dyed fabric, because it represents something to us. It represents our values of freedom and justice and valor and integrity. It also reminds us of our history and the countless hundreds of thousands of lives that have been lost in the preservation and protection of our freedoms. That is, it is sacred to us. And there's probably parts in our country that if you were to, uh, the more conservative parts, that if you were to trample the flag or burn it, you might not live to tell about it, especially in places like Wyoming. You just don't do that because we consider it sacred. I sat at a table with a man years ago 
in upstate New York who had lost his wife. And we sat at his table, just him and I, and every time he said her name, it was with a sense of reverence. Why? Because he loved her. Why should the Christian have a holy reverence for God's name? Far above the USS Arizona, far above the flag, far above anything we hold sacred in our culture because it represents the God who gave himself for us, who was infinitely majestic and holy and yet condescended and became a slave and died on the cross. We should, because we love him who first loved us, say it with a sense of sacred reverence, Jesus, not as a swear word, not as an empty use of the word. Do you hear me? At the end of the day, it's not just, hey, don't take the Lord's name in vain. It's like, no. I want to learn how to love the Lord God with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, all my strength. Why? Because of who he is. And part of the expression of our love to God is the way in which we convey, treat, use his name with our lips, but also the way we relate to his name with our lives. Is that clear? I hope that this will be a, a stir up. Like, how do we really revere the Lord and his name? It's very, very important to us that it was the second of the Ten Commandments. Puts it near the top. Worship the Lord God alone and revere his holy name. And what better way to, to just be reminded of the depth of God's love, who is highest of the high, taking the place of the lowest of the low, to make sinners like you and I, sons and daughters, is pretty darn amazing. And a good, compelling reason why to treat his name with respect. And to celebrate that, to remember that, uh, we're going to take communion together this morning. Bread, symbol of his body. The cup, symbol of his blood. He gave it as a recurring reminder for us as God's people to come back to the center, back to where our hope lies, where the very source of our forgiveness comes from, to remember all that God has done. So uh, as you come this morning, and I don't know if we have new people here, but just in case we do, um, David's going to come and he's going to lead us in some music and um, I'm going to pray. And as I do, if I could have those who are serving communion come take their place, we have uh, gluten-free as well as regular bread. Just ask for it and form lines and you can take it back to your seat and just contemplate and reflect on the name of God communicated in these elements. Let's pray. Father, we um, come to you as people who, are, uh, who can laugh at all the wrong things, and we can show respect to all the wrong things, and we also want to confess to you that many times we have failed in the reverence that is due your name, and we just ask your forgiveness. We ask that you would strengthen our hearts with love and faith um, to fear your name as you are the beginning and the end, you are just the alpha, the omega, the, the one who was, is, and is to come. There's just no way of fully grasping who you are. And we ask you to train our hearts to revere your name and forgive us of our sin. Communicate your love to us through the bread and the cup this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.